This is Energy Voice Out Loud, leading the global energy conversation. I'm Alistair Thomas and welcome to our podcast. I'm joined this week by our Africa and LNG editor Ed Reed and digital journalist Hamish Penman. And we're back for the new year and have plenty to offer you this week. Energy policy, Cambo and even cyanide coffee. But first, the pertinent question. What did everyone think of the rig on Amazon Prime? Ed, I think you've seen all six now. Uh, I have, I have. I, I, I slightly misunderstood uh, the assignment. But I, I also just wanted to, you know, find out what life was about in the North Sea. So I just thought, you know, just settle down and just plow straight through it. Um... I mean, I got to the end. <laughs> I got to the finishing line. <laughs> we, yeah, I, I, I think, I mean, I um, I thought the ending was good. I thought it got lost in the middle. Uh, and I thought the CGI was a bit ropey. Mm. Um, so I don't know. But also, I'm, I'm, I'm intrigued to find out from you guys, whether is this like the authentic picture of, of, of what life is like? on a platform uh, in the North Sea. Is, 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 this, is this really how it looks? I think I'm the only one of us who've been on a platform in the North Sea. I wouldn't say I'm overly qualified to describe it, but I know we've been taking some reactions from the workers. And, uh, you know, I think a lot of them are taking this for what it is, which is sci-fi, not meant to be totally realistic. Um, yeah, I, I think the, the HSE stuff is is not real um, at all. Um, I think the... Uh, the um, <laughs> <laughs> yeah, there's probably a lot of problems around that specifically. There's been efforts around, I think, the sets that make it look pretty realistic, I would say. It's the outside bits and the, the CGI, as you say, which uh, which uh, maybe is causing problems. Hamish, what are your thoughts on the matter? Yeah, I broadly agree with Ed. So I think there were some, some good parts. I think the writers did make a bit of an effort to actually engage with the industry. There was chat about carbon capture and transition and HSE records and things like that, but... Yeah, the script writing maybe left a bit to be desired. I think in the first twenty minutes, where somebody shouted "you shitting shit" at a seagull, it was it wasn't going to be Wordsworth after that. That's almost as if they've just taken an Energy Voice Out Loud podcast and recorded that as part of dialogue. <laughs> anyway, uh, well, I mean, make your own uh, mind up about the rig, uh, dear listener. Um, but we have uh, got various reaction pieces up on EnergyVoice.com, so please do check those out. Um, but yeah, let's start this week with Hamish Penman, who's going to be who has been looking at, and will take us through the new, the newly announced Scottish government energy strategy. What's the what's the verdict, Hamish? Uh, it depends who you ask, as is the uh, case with these things. I'd say there's probably an overriding verdict from our part of the um, our probably side of the fence and our part of the world up here in Aberdeen. But we'll uh, we'll come to that in a minute. Let's get to the the meat and veg of it, um, because I mean, it always seems that whenever we're feeding out our uh, our supplement copy and we've already got a plethora of news then then just a, a whole whirlwind of other things seem to, to fall on the desk and, and 2023 is no exception don't i know it yeah, yeah so the uh, the scottish government has published its energy strategy and just transition plan and um everyone's really happy with it and i don't think we need to delve into this anymore <laughs> Perfect. Yeah. That was quick. <laughs> so this is meant to be the blueprint for uh, Scotland's transition to net zero, ensuring opportunities are capitalised on and oil and gas workers aren't left out on a whim. Um, so as you'd expect, a large chunk of the 200 or so pages that either 
the pleasure of fishing through on Tuesday afternoon is uh, it's focused on renewables, scaling up offshore wind targets, setting targets for, for solar tidal um, and hydrogen pledges. Um, there's backing again for Acorn as well. Uh, basically, I, th- I think the, the bottom line is if it's low carbon, it's got ScotGov backing. Um, that's the long and short of it on that side of the equation. On the other side, and this is what grabs most of the headlines, um, much to Holyrood's annoyance, I would fathom, is the oil and gas piece. Uh, so the document says, in a, a rather affected way, I think, that ScotGov is consulting on whether in order to support the fastest possible and most eff- effective just trans- just transition, sorry, I can't speak today, there should be a presumption against new exploration for oil and gas um so what that basically means to me anyway and this seems to be the wider interpretation of it is that they are recommending the accelerated wind down of north sea oil and gas they're also calling for licensing climate checkpoints to be tightened and to take into account global emissions impacts even though the document does admit that that's very hard to do Uh, and for licenses that have been granted as well but where your drilling is yet to start uh, they are calling for those to be reassessed under their criteria Unsurprisingly, this has sparked some pretty furious reactions from within industry. Um, Head of Aberdeen Grampian Chamber of Commerce, Russell Borthwick, described it as a, a breathtaking betrayal, said that everyone was left aghast at the decision up here and has called for it to be reversed uh, to suites. Uh, similarly, scathing words from Ian Woods. Uh, and it even got mentioned in the House of Commons. Rishi Sunak has weighed in on it as well, um, claiming that the SP is abandoning the North Sea energy industry. There are those that are backing the documents, uh, believe it will accelerate the transition. And I suppose a speedy transition is what we're all kind of after, really. But it, it can't be at the expense of things like energy security, affordability, jobs and, and a chaotic wind down, which is, I think, is the fear that many people get when they when they get into the nitty gritty of this Um Pretty much all the net zero projections of oil and gas have it as part of the mix until 2050 and even after, really, I suppose, if you take into the account the rollout of CCS. Um, and Michael Matheson said in Holyrood that domestic production will effectively end within the next 20 years um, based on current projections, just not entirely true. It will be far lower than it was, but to say it's all but wrapped up is a bit disingenuous, I think. Um, and he said the, the, they will consult on whether to act faster on this. So there's a circle there to square in terms of getting energy. And I think the Scottish government are going after supply before addressing demand. So just quickly before I finish my, my first rant of the year, it's uh, important to remember that energy is a reserved power. So the strategy is little more than ceremonial unless Scotland gains independence. And I would wonder if the Yes movement may have lost a few supporters off the back of this uh policy specifically in the northeast yeah yeah i mean i I think that's maybe the one of the most important points to to put out here um you know symbolic um at this stage um until scotland gains independence as it's a reserve matter i mean look uh, the targets are uh, aspirational i suppose Uh, it seems to me that this for, for those that Support oil and gas um, f- f- firmly will feel this is a, as you as you mentioned, Hamish, a betrayal. I think people on the other side who want an end to oil and gas may, may even think that it doesn't go far enough. Um, I think parts of it pretty much aligned with what the industry wants in terms of the fast-paced uh, shift away. I think it's the substance uh, and how we get there that seems to be the sticking point here. Um, you know, by the time we look at Scottish independence, are we going to have, if we indeed we do? Will we have another policy document that replaces this one? You know, how far is this going to go? That would maybe one of my thoughts on it. Um, what if an independent Scotland suddenly needs a surge of gas because something like Ukraine happens again? Uh, and what's the message to workers who, 
you know, remain pretty unconvinced about the pace of transition or job creation. I mean, just look at the the manufacturing and offshore wind in Scotland. You know, that that's come to pretty much nought so far. I think it's fair to say a lot of debates around hydrogen is is it a you know is it a viable replacement to fossil fuels? Can we get it up and running fast enough? Is it the right option versus electrification? We don't know necessarily. There's no support as of yet financially for Scottish CCS. Um, so. There's all these targets, but in terms of actually actioning that transition, it, it does. It seems to me that the jigsaw pieces aren't really in place to do so, especially if they're seeking to get rid of oil and gas immediately. Interesting that they're talking about looking at the global emissions profile of the North Sea. That would be quite. I mean, I, I think what they'll find there is it's 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 pretty clean in comparison to other major oil and gas uh, areas. Um, I'm sure Ed could take us through uh, what the UAE is looking at in terms of their massive oil production targets. And I guess lastly, you know, this all comes uh, as today, you know, we're reporting that Aberdeen's green freeport bid is expected to miss out. Um, Cromarty Firth, which, which is great, uh, and fourth ports seem to be the winners. We're expecting confirmation of that. So, you know, we've got that kind of tentpole no Aberdeen Freeport. We've got no carbon capture and storage support from the UK government either. We have a Scottish energy strategy, which seems to turn its back on the industry, which is, whichever way you cut it, propped up the Aberdeen economy for decades. Um, so, and perhaps a premature wind down of it, whilst we still don't have the economic benefits of manufacturing for renewables, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. So I can see why people might be a bit miffed by this, I guess would be the way I'd put it. Ed, what do you think of, I guess, the North Sea perspective versus... Um, internationally and you know if we shut down the north sea do you think it's going to make a material difference to global emissions uh, you're looking at places that are major lng producers and you were not long ago at uh, adnox big uh, oil field in, in in abu dhabi just what, what's your thoughts on that yeah i mean i think i think that question around sort of uh, around around kind of carbon intensity is going to be kind of front and center isn't it i mean i think most people in the industry recognize that there's going to be some need for oil and gas into the future right obviously there's kind of a question about how far that is but i think the the differentiating factor is going to be that kind of carbon emissions right is 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 how many kilograms of uh, of of carbon per per barrel per per whatever and i think that's clearly you know what uh, what what the north sea's got to sort of try and compete on particularly you know given not just kind of local concerns but also things like uh carbon border adjustment mechanisms and things like that and you know as 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 you were saying right i mean uh, adnoc has clearly kind of seen this challenge and is 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 taking steps to try and uh, you know sort of position itself for the future so you know if if the north sea shuts down is that is that bad globally yes to an extent but i mean i think it's not it's not globally important but i think it is uh, it's 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 significant about about sort of the direction of travel isn't it and i think there is that question around as you were saying, Hamish, kind of, you know, do you tackle the sort of the supply or the demand? And I think uh, all the all the emphasis on, uh, on 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 cutting supply is possibly not uh, the, uh, the the best route in itself. So, uh, yeah, I mean, I, I yes, uh, some 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 skepticism is uh, it, it seems warranted. It would seem. Hey, Mish, I cut you off there before I started speaking. What were your What was the point you were going to make there? No, it's just basically doubling down on what you were saying. Really, is how much more can the uh, can the northeast really take it, it seems to be it seems to be giving up all it can to, uh, to to governments both north and south of the border and getting absolutely nothing in return it's uh kind of the the fable of the golden goose that laid the golden egg and and it's understandable why people here are just just aghast at at, 
at the situation as it stands and there doesn't seem to be any sort of and almost in a way the green freeport seemed like the last kind of uh, perhaps policy that was that was waiting that people were waiting for that could play into Aberdeen hands I'd, I'd track two of CCS now but that's increasingly being delayed so I mean what are people really holding <laughs> business leaders and, and workers here really holding out for now it's I, I, I saw somebody um, speaking on LinkedIn saying any young talent is just going to finish their degree here and move away and I find it very hard to disagree with that. Indeed okay well we'll park the politics there thank you Hamish uh, next up we'll go to Ed where with well an attempt at assassination Energy Voice investigates and reports on what matters in global energy, helping sector leaders understand the geopolitical and economic factors underpinning current events and giving them a view on what's coming over the horizon. Each year, 3.4 million professionals use Energy Voice as a trusted source of breaking news and insight. Subscribers to Energy Voice receive unlimited access to the Energy Voice website, including premium content, free and discounted special reports and additional content, free access to the Energy Voice Live app featuring a personalised feed and priority access to Energy Voice events. For a 30-day free trial subscription to the Energy Voice website and app, visit energyvoice.com slash subscriptions. Join the global energy conversation with Energy Voice. Ed, I like uh, a bit of milk in my coffee, uh, sugar on occasion, never had cyanide, um, but I gather Eskom's CEO incredibly and and shockingly uh, has, and he's came away with his life. Yes, it's it's an incredibly curious story, isn't it? I mean, so so, so just to uh, just to, to, to sort of shed some light on, on on the situation in in December, uh, South Africa's energy minister, uh, you know, in some comments to the press, uh, raised various concerns around ESCOM, uh, including. Uh, the allegation that the state, this state-owned uh, electricity company, was uh, effectively agitating for the state overthrow—that's pretty much a direct quote. Um, as you can imagine, that 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 posed some challenges for uh, for executives at ESCOM, uh, and 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 so the CEO uh, essentially, you know, sort of handed in his notice, understandably, right, uh, with that sort of show of confidence, it would be hard to carry on. Um, but the. So just after he had decided to quit, uh, but before it was publicly announced, uh, he was having a cup of coffee in his office in uh, in, in Eskom's uh, headquarters in, in Johannesburg. Started feeling a bit, bit ill um, and, you know, whistled off to the doctor. Doctor's diagnosis was that he had uh, been poisoned with cyanide in his coffee. Right. So obviously it was all very curious. Um, the allegations were reported to the police. Eskom has not officially commented on it as far as I understand it as yet. So there's still some kind of questions around quite what happened around you know what what the sort of the next step is obviously who might uh have 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 tried to kill the ceo in uh, in his office in 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 the company's headquarters you know uh obviously a very strange point i think uh, it's it's worth remembering that escom has a number of challenges with uh with uh, with corruption with criminality um there have been a number of instances where the company's ability to generate power has uh been undermined by people both within the company and and, and outside it in order to uh try and extract more uh, more cash 
So I think that's kind of part of the question. Like, is it is there is there some sort of an organised crime aspect to it? Uh, you know, did that sort of perhaps play into it? I think that, that but there's also another question around around the future of ESCOM. So um, I think there have been in, in 2022, there was something like there was more than 100 days, possibly 200 days where uh, electricity generation was impeded in some way. And load shedding has essentially become a fact of life. I think at the moment they're in low stage six which I was speaking to someone the other day who said that they were looking at something like 10 hours of blackouts uh, on, on on occasional days as you can imagine it's 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 not a not a great uh, state for for a com- for for a country to be in let alone, let alone a company so there's a lot of criticism around escom of course and there's questions around you know the maintenance around around how they are trying to you know provide generation is it a historic problem? Is it a you know current leadership problem? Is it a country problem? I think there's a lot of lot of obviously a lot of lot of different thoughts there. Right. And then just to wrap it up, it's obviously kind of coming back to that kind of question around uh, the energy minister and his faith or not faith in in ESCOM. And I think the uh, president Ramaphosa said earlier this week that um, the plan was to move ESCOM essentially back into the energy minister to, to kind of centralise power. The minister has been seen largely as sort of pro-coal, anti-renewables. I think, you know, obviously he might dispute that, but certainly there's there's been a lot of talk around renewables but very little progress in terms of sort of bringing renew, renewables projects online and at the same time uh, the minister has really sort of st- stepped up to defend coal coal generating something like 80 odd percent of south africa's power and so there's there is concern that moving the company back into uh, the ministry uh, is is really going to obfuscate things there's going to be less transparency there's going to be less clarity around its plans um and you know potentially open the door for more for more corruption for more state capture as it's called more uh, kind of sweetheart deals between politically well-connected companies uh supplying uh things to escom so it's a bad moment for ESCOM. Obviously, I don't know who would want to step into Andre de Reuter's uh, shoes, uh, having just survived an assassination attempt and uh, obviously lacking uh, confidence uh, from the state. So he's going to stick around until the end of March. Who's going to want to step into those shoes? I probably would say no. <laughs> yeah, I mean, look, if it's a North Sea boss, we'll maybe do a story about his salary getting published or, you know, protest or something. This seems an other, an, a totally different set of, another kettle of fish, I guess. So, I mean, just in terms of the South African business community, I mean, I, I guess we're talking about, if, if it was poisoning, uh, it certainly would seem to be the case if that's what the doctor's telling him, uh, organized crime? I mean, it just seems like such... <laughs> Red flag does not quite cut it in terms of how of how of how serious this is. I mean, yeah, I mean, as you say, Ed, who on earth would want to step into those shoes again? And gosh, it sounds just a, a horrendous, uh, a horrendous, uh, well, yeah, a horrendous relationship with the South African government as well, frankly. Um, yeah, I mean, look, is that is that? I don't really know what the culture is like in South Africa. We do hear about um, gangs and things of that nature. I don't. I, this feels pretty. Um, extraordinary. Um, 
you know, could it happen again, I suppose, would be the sort of thing I'd be thinking about. Yeah. I mean, I, I look, I think it's a fair question, right? And I think um, I... It, it, it's an extraordinary turn of events, right? I think, I think, I think anywhere in the world, the the idea that uh, there was an assassination attempt on the, you know, uh, owner of, you know, the the head of the sort of the the the, you know, power utility is it is an extraordinary turn of events, and I, I think it's it's sort of unprecedented. So, can it happen again? I, I mean, I, I think you know, obviously, the fact that it has seemingly happened this time around, obviously, it'd be nice to get some more clarity around quite what happened. It'd be really interesting to you know get some insight into what the police are are thinking how that investigation is going um but could it happen again i mean i think you know it it, it clearly can't be ruled out right and i think there is clearly a, a a a political problem in in south africa around around governance um and obviously you know the the anc has been in power for for a very long time there's there's certainly a lack of transparency around around, around some of the ways in which the anc works um the previous president uh, zuma obviously faced a number of charges uh, including sexual assault um and 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 obviously he He's uh, he's he's sort of uh, in, a, in a process of sort of judicial review at the moment. So, I think that there are some really serious questions around 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 governance, around transparency in South Africa. It's uh, you kind of always want to you know kind of try and find some sort of positive right about about the ways in which things can get better. And I think that there are clearly opportunities for renewables in South Africa, which could really have an impact. I think you know there's a sort of a, a world class solar and wind resource, uh, and which I think you know could really revolutionise things. And there is uh, there is an industrial, there is a sort of a business, uh, you know, uh, industry base there, which which clearly wants uh, wants to kind of you know things to get better, to have you know reliable generation to you know clear up these kind of corruption and transparency concerns because obviously that would have an impact on on the country and and again you know it's a kind of a political kind of, kind of concern because unemployment in South Africa is I want to say 30 to 40 percent I'm not sure of the exact numbers recently but uh, certainly it's in that sort of a ballpark so uh, stronger economy, stronger, stronger employment. You know, more money flowing in. Obviously, there would be you know political returns. The question is, how do you get there? Um, and I think the the move to move ESCOM sort of more solidly back into the government. I think that's that's the major concern. Is if it's a return to the past where you know more of these 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 dodgy deals are done, where we see uh, relationships like the Guptas kind of maybe coming back. This is going to be a real concern, and 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 essentially, I think you know maybe the the, the bellwether for that, the, the way to see whether things are moving in the right direction or not, is around uh, the renewable uptake, right? If if South Africa can really plot a way to transition in 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 the same way that the North Sea is talking away from this kind of historic high carbon coal uh, generation of the past to something cleaner, right? Because clearly, this is the way of the future, and as mentioned with carbon adjustments and, and, and things like that for South Africa's exports to continue to compete in the future. They're going to need to move away from, from, from high carbon intensity. Renewables would be a great way to do it. Can the man, can, can the minister or a new, uh, new ESCOM CEO deliver that? I would like to say that I'm hopeful, but I'm, I'm going to, let's just say I'm going to keep my fingers crossed. 
<laughs> Diplomatically put, nicely, <laughs> nicely done, Ed. Uh, okay, we'll uh, park that one there, and uh, next up, we'll revisit Cambo, a year on since Shell said it would not invest. As well as these regular weekly news roundups on Energy Voice Out Loud, you'll also find lots of subject-specific box sets in the same feed, and I'm excited to be the anchor for one called the Megawatt Hour. Produced in paid partnership with BDO, the Megawatt Hour brings together experts from across the energy industry and across the world to examine the challenges and the opportunities of energy storage. As more of the grid gets its power from intermittent renewables, energy storage technologies, and batteries in particular, are going to be an increasingly important feature of our infrastructure. Over the course of 10 monthly episodes, we'll be diving deep into the tech, the policy, and the challenges of building out energy storage to help you better understand its opportunities, wherever you work in the energy sector. Look out for episodes of the Megawatt Hour in Energy Voice Out Loud, as well as lots of other special episodes wherever you get your podcasts. So, with the new year, we're now more than a year since Shell decided it would not invest in the Cambo oil field. You'll remember, hopefully, what it was like December 2021, a month after COP26. Shell said that due to the economics and potential for delays, it would not progress the project. Everyone seems convinced that, although they never admitted it, the environmental kind of outrage around Cambo played a part in the thinking there, too. Uh, if you'll recall the kind of the headlines we had in and around that time, certainly around COP26, I don't think it's an exaggeration to say this is certainly one of the most uh, hotly contested oil fields in the world from an environmental perspective. So despite the 12 months, uh, 13 months coming up since then, uh, Shell has not exited its 30% stake, uh, albeit has reportedly launched a sales process back in August. And I remember, you know, when they said they'd leave back in December, we just sent our printed supplement away uh, to the printers. Um, Shell made the announcement, so we had to get the news up and also rewrite the whole uh, supplement until about three o'clock in the morning. So won't be making that mistake. Um, <laughs> but yeah, despite that, despite Shell still having its stake, a lot of things have actually changed since then. Um, one thing being that Ithaca Energy has come on board as operator of Cambo, determined, it seems, to progress it uh, with hopes for a, a crucial final investment decision this year. We have higher commodity prices, in no small part due, obviously, to the invasion of Ukraine. In that regard, some economics will have improved for Cambo, and we have investment incentives linked to the UK windfall tax, uh, which obviously was introduced in the interim period, and those uh, investment incentives are designed to make projects just like this, like Cambo, more attractive. So we've got a piece online today as, as we record, uh, assessing, I guess, the lay of the land, if you like, crucially asking questions around, will Shell sell, say that fast three times, and, and should they sell, you know, given the altogether different landscape? So we spoke to four analysts. Uh, consensus being that the buyer pool is pretty small for a major project like this with the environmental uh, furor, if you like, and the political uncertainty in the UK. There aren't many names. Uh, one analyst, in fact, said he doesn't know who would actually go out and buy this. I guess you might look at the west of Shetland, who's dominant there. You've got players like BP, Total Energies, Equinor. Any one of them coming in, I'm quite certain would face similar issues uh, in terms of uh, the outrage around Cambo. And I don't think Ithaca necessarily 
wants to hold 100% of this project. So as I said, it's important to note that Ithaca wants FID this year. Shell has not historically been quick to divest its non-core assets, if you like. Uh, and some analysts have talked about that potentially impacting timelines. Uh, Gneiss Energy said Shell uh, already have Jackdaw. We have the Stop Jackdaw campaign picking up momentum um, recently as well. So maybe two hotly contested projects. Maybe they just don't necessarily want to be in that firing line. I'll just continue, though. The other point of should Shell sell it? Gosh, I'm really struggling with that. It's one of the very few projects in the UK that will get material investment allowances from the windfall tax, as I said. Shell doesn't have that opportunity necessarily through its other projects. It's got Pierce and Penguins coming online, uh, hopefully this year, um, but they've already spent the money there, so they can't get those rebates, right? So most are pretty clear that the economics have improved. There is this opportunity to, to benefit from the windfall tax, if you like, and the emissions profile of Cambo actually, comparatively, is pretty low. So what else? Uh, well, uh, look at the windfall tax from the other side. Uh, Woodmac tells us that it is a brave investor that doesn't think it's still going to be there beyond 2028, which is currently mooted under the Conservative government. Obviously, we have a general election coming up, and it seems that well, Labour has not been ambiguous about their intent here. If they get in, they're going to tax the oil companies. They're going to stop what they describe as uh, giveaways uh, linked to the windfall tax. Any investor coming in, Obviously, we'll be taking that into account. And of course, the, the environmental aspect hasn't gone away. Uh, yes, they, they want to electrify Cambo, um, and Ithaca has just signed a pact along with Equinor and BP to uh, proceed with electrification across the west of Shetland. That's great. Um, I guess I'll say this. It does seem to be moving quite slowly. If, uh, if they want first production in 2025, which I think has been mooted, uh, that feels pretty doubtful at this stage. But yeah, I mean, look, I guess one of the points that a more optimistic view in it was uh, Dave Mosley of, of Wellagence. He was actually of the mind that public opinion has changed in the last 12, 13 months, given the situation around Ukraine, given, uh, you know, the gas price crisis. Um, I would venture, given what we've just seen from the Scottish government, that's not necessarily the case. Um, but interested to put it to you guys, what do you think about Cambo? Do you think the general consensus, now environmental activists are, are one thing, but do you think the consensus has changed? And I guess we might just add to the fact that this is a predominantly oil field, not a gas field. I would be surprised if it hadn't changed to a certain extent, though I would also be surprised if it if the if it had swayed from one side to the other, I think that perhaps a, a few more people might be on board with it um, than there were, especially during COP26. But I, I don't know if there would be enough to say that there's overwhelming public support for it. Um, I think the, the case of the Scottish Energy Strategy, you have to remember that the the, the influence of the, the Green Party, who the SFP are in coalition with, is, is shining through in that. So we can probably uh, make a pretty good guess at what their thoughts are on the fields um, and and the North Sea in general. But yeah, on the whole, I'm not sure. Um, it does seem like now or never for Cambo, though. I think it was Westwood that said said as much in in, in late December. So, but oh, but the the wheels do seem to be moving on the project. I think we wrote last year that the contract for the FPSO is still out there is they're still kind of working as uh, working as if it's going to go ahead so yeah we'll see but yeah i can't see um ithaca going going on it alone especially given it's proved 
I mean, that that area as a whole has proved such a tough nut to crack. I mean, just look at Rosebank and um, was it Chevron that was there before and, and couldn't get that going? It's a, not an easy area to, to produce. Yeah, I think this would be the first um, the first project in a thousand meter waters for the UK. Um, I think Woodmac highlighted. So when Shell say they've got concerns about delays, that is valid and something we should probably be aware of. So your, <laughs> your point's right there. Um, Ed, what, what's your thoughts on all of this? I mean, I, I kind of do feel that, that there has been a bit of a change of, uh, of of public attitude. I mean, I think there there is there are still you know clearly groups who who, who will oppose uh, you know developments like Cambo and you know other ones. But I I kind of do feel that uh, that kind of intensity that we saw in uh, at the end of 2021 has, has has kind of dropped off. Right, I think you know I kind of feel like. Uh, there was a certain amount of innocence that we had then that that, that maybe uh, has, has has subsequently changed post invasion of Ukraine, right? Um, so I mean, I think I guess in terms of um, you know sort of who 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 might come in, surely there's uh, there must be some sort of up and coming whippersnapper, private equity ne'er do well who wants to throw some cash in and doesn't mind about the negative publicity. Yeah, uh, I mean, look, I, I hesitate to throw any names out there, um, but. It, it wouldn't be the strangest thing in the world uh, to see somebody come in. I mean, we know that there are companies that have been looking to, to buy up around the North Sea recently. Um, one of those has, you know, Equinor has Rosebank. You know, it would kind of make sense that they might be interested in a field close by to it. Um, in for a penny, in for a pound, it would mean that they're involved in two of the most hotly contested oil fields in the UK, quite possibly the world. Um whether or that's right or not uh, is, is a separate matter. You know, we don't really tend to hear about activists in places like um, the UAE for obvious reasons. But, you know, in countries like the UK, this stuff is all very, very visible. Um, interesting about the, the change of public opinion, you know, around COP26, I would argue that the UK government was kind of heading in the same direction as where we find the Scottish government now. You know, there was, a, there was, there was, it's hard to remember that now all the time that's passed but th around that time they were thinking ah uh, new oil fields etc cetera, etc cetera. and obviously since then we've had things like you know ukraine fast track these fields uh, and a real uh, disjoint between Holyrood and westminster uh, rightly as you say hamish um i'm sure in no small part due to uh the the influence of of the green party um so yeah i mean look if they can get electrification up and running, they can probably make a decent case for it. They're going to have to get it past the NSTA hurdles. I would be amazed to see the NSTA or indeed um, Opred halt this project. Um, uh, it would probably need to go higher up, I'm guessing. But um, yeah, if they can do that, they might win over the court of public opinion. I think once we get closer to that FID, the headwinds will probably pick up as well. It's not a very profound or original take, but it's probably what's going to happen. I'm sure the activists will, will keep their eye on it. But yes, we will also keep our eye on Cambo as things go forward. But that is it for this week's Energy Voice Out Loud. So thank you to Ed and to Hamish for joining me. I've been Alistair Thomas, and thanks for listening. Out Loud is the podcast from Energy Voice, leading the global energy conversation. Bookmark and subscribe to energyvoice.com, sign up to our newsletter and follow us on LinkedIn and Twitter for expert analysis and insight right across the energy sector. Subscribe to Out Loud on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Google Podcasts or wherever you get your podcasts. And please do encourage colleagues and friends to listen to Out Loud too.
If you've enjoyed it, leaving a rating or review, especially on Apple Podcasts, helps others discover it too. Thank you.